Once again, once again, it's great to um, open the Bible together. It's always a privilege to look into the text because we need to look into the text often. We have forgetful minds. We tend to dwell on all we see around us, and we really um, are are uh, have short memories when it comes to having faith in God and putting our hopes in something other than uh, the weekend. One of the things that really helped me get through the corporate world when I was in it, even though it was ministry, was regularly reading the Dilbert comic strip. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but whether you are or not, I'm going to introduce you to a wonderful portion of it. This is one of my favorites. Um, The guy walks into the boss and... The guy says, uh, I don't remember what this guy's name is, but he says, I find it rather demotivating that you never praise me for a job well done. And then the boss, Wally, okay. And then uh, the boss says, you've never done a job well. And Wally says, well, that's because I'm demotivated. And the boss says, you have to go first And Wally says, wouldn't that make me the leader? (laughs) I just love that. We need affirmation. And whether it's from our boss or from our spouse or from our pastor or from our God, because the, the important things in life are the things that, unfortunately, we often forget. And if we don't have affirmations of simple things, like our boss telling us, hey, you know what, you did a good job, then um, then we're going to question it. And we often do. Affirmation is essential. Assurance is essential. And in our spiritual lives, thankfully, God does go first. He does take the initiative to give us that affirmation. Just think about all the times in the, in the ministry of Jesus that he affirmed people. I mean, if anybody could point out the sin in people's lives, it would have been Jesus Christ. And yet, Jesus didn't do that, did he? He was often, uh, well, that's not all he did. He was often affirming people. And even think about the parable in which he told the words that we can expect when we see Christ, those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus was an affirmer, and he got that from uh, his, his God and Father, our God and Father, who was an affirmer as well. Let's look together at Genesis chapter 15. So open your Bible, if you would, to Genesis 15. And if you don't have it there in your lap, we'll wait for you to go get it. (laughs) Because having the text there before you is nothing like actually looking in the Bible and reading these words as opposed to just hearing them. I think one of the great benefits of podcasts or of audio recordings or even Zoom, of course, is that the sound can transmit. And to some sense, the sight can. But uh, having the text there in your lap and actually reading it with your hands and with your eyes and, and allowing your senses to be involved in experiencing the Bible is one of the greatest ways to, to learn it. Well, Genesis 15, 
we are uh, in a series that we've, we're looking at the life of Abraham. And when it comes to a relationship with God, I think one of the most sensitive and intimate of all relationships we have, of course, is God. And so assurance is essential. Abraham was called by God. We saw back in Genesis 12, he left Ur of the Chaldees and ultimately settled in Canaan, a land that God had promised him. And God promised Abraham three things, uh, land, descendants, and blessing. And we see those three things in Genesis 12. Well, immediately after it gets into the land, uh, there is a famine. And this faith that Abraham exhibited toward God is tested. Well, Abraham is weak at this moment and goes down to Egypt, lies about Sarah, and you remember that whole story. And God learned a lesson. And in the next couple of chapters, which we looked at last time, we saw that uh, Abraham's faith was clicking on all cylinders. And that uh, when there was strife between him and Lot, he magnanimously said, you know what, Lot, we need to... Our, our herds are too big. We need to divide and go separate directions so that our herds can live. Another famine. But this time Abraham responded in faith, and he told Lot, say, you pick the best land and I'll take the leftovers. And then God reassured him that all of the land would be his one day. Well, the bad thing is Lot decided to settle in the best of the land, which was also the worst of all spiritual places in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the area was invaded by kings, and it, Lot was taken off as a captive. Abraham had to go rescue him. And then we saw last time in Genesis 14 where uh, Abraham appeared before Melchizedek at Salem, which was ancient Jerusalem at the time. And uh, there was a, an exchange there that was significant. But what we'll find out as we begin Genesis 15 is that uh, Abraham walks away from that conversation with those kings, not only having done the right thing and not accepting anything from them, but he also walks away with fear. So look at Genesis 15, and let's begin right there in the first verse. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Now, it's significant that the text says, after these things. God came to Abraham after the interview with these kings and tells Abraham, don't be afraid, I am your shield. So, to be told not to be afraid means Abraham was afraid, or he was struggling with fear. And God says, don't you worry about these kings, perhaps retaliating or something, uh, come you know, getting back at Abraham for what he did. Um, God says, I'm your shield. I am your protector. And then God broadens that even more and, and saying, remember, your reward shall be very great. God had made a promise to Abraham. And if something happened to Abraham, what's going to happen to God's promise? So the Lord's telling Abraham, don't be afraid. You have a future and uh, I'm going to protect you and I'm going to protect that promise. Interesting, the word there for reward, your reward is very great. It's the same word in Hebrew that we saw several weeks ago when we looked at Psalm 127, that great psalm about fathers. It says that children are a reward uh, of the Lord. 
It's the same word. And it's the same idea here that God has promised Abraham a future and a reward that's intimately connected with Abraham being a father, which sort of makes Abraham think, well, that's great, except I'm not a father. And we'll see that as the text goes on here, he, he immediately addresses that very issue. Have you ever noticed how God knows just what buttons to push? He knows exactly where we're struggling. And so, he puts us in situations in life not to watch us squirm, but to give us opportunities for our weak faith to be strengthened. And this is what he did with Abraham. He brings this issue up. Remember, your reward is going to be very great. He could have simply said, don't worry, Abraham, I'm going to protect you. But, but God brings the reward into it, the descendants into it, and Abraham didn't have descendants. So, look at verse 2. You see exactly what Abraham is thinking immediately as God mentions um, the, the covenant and the, and the promise. Verse 2, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and heir, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Interesting words, aren't they? And they illustrate a truth, or maybe we could say an answer to a question. Do you know what we do with the delays when God delays? You know what we do with delays? We try to figure them out. We try to figure a way around them. There's something about human nature that hates to wait, especially when it has to do with God. I mean, God, all-powerful God, could snap his fingers and take care of it in a moment, doesn't. Well, there's got to be a reason, and I have to understand that reason. Abraham had it all figured out. Well, since God hasn't fulfilled his promise in my life regarding a child, I'm going to have an heir, that heir is my servant, and uh, problem solved. Interesting, the word that Abraham used here, Lord God, what will you give me, could also be translated, what can you give me? What can you do, God? You haven't fulfilled what you said you were going to do in my life, so my servant is my heir. I think so often in our, our walks with God are stuck because we have a short-sighted perspective. Because it isn't the way it should be now, it never will be. You see this a lot of times with uh, singles. You know, when am I ever going to meet my husband? When am I ever going to meet my spouse? Uh, but because it hasn't happened, we think it never will. The emotion of the present is so strong, we can't imagine that it would ever change. So, God clarifies his promise to Abram, and then he illustrates it. He not only says it's true, but he shows that it's true. Look at verse 4. Then, behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now, look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. They don't call it amazing grace for nothing. Abraham expresses his impatience. 
and God graciously, lovingly clarifies the promise. You're going to be the father of many nations. Oh, and by the way, I don't mean that you're going to be the father in the sense of Eliezer being your heir. One from your own body will be your heir. Interesting he didn't mention Sarah in this context. We know that Sarah is part of the deal. But he didn't mention it here because there's more faith that has to grow, and that's uh, with regard to Abraham and Sarah. But at this point, he simply says, Abraham, you're going to be the biological father of this promise. And uh, we're going to see that this is going to get Abraham and Sarah in trouble, as again, they're short-sighted on their faith in the chapters that come. Um, how long has it been since you've seen the stars? You know, living in the, the Metroplex, as we do, even out here in the country, sort of where Kathy and I live, it's got to be a pretty dark night to see the stars in all their glory. I remember when Kathy and I went to um, the Grand Canyon uh, last year, or maybe two years ago, two summers ago. We uh, camped along the, the, the Snake River there, or the Colorado River, and it was just, I mean, there's no street lights out there. And you could just lay back. It's the only time I remember sleeping with my glasses on because it was so beautiful to look at all the stars. This is what Abraham saw. And do you know there are about 3,000 stars that we can see just with our naked eye? Uh, you, guess you could conceivably count 3,000 stars. But there are about 100,000 stars that we could see using a small telescope. 100,000 with a small telescope. Uh, scientists estimate that there are, in our Milky Way galaxy, 100 billion stars. That's just our galaxy. In the universe, now this is, this is a number that is beyond our ability to understand, there are 10 billion trillion stars. The number is beyond comprehension. And honestly, that's the point. The greatest illustration we have of eternity is the universe. And God points to it. God points to the universe as incomprehensible. And God tells Abraham, Abraham, that's how many descendants you're going to have from your own body. Oh, and, and by the way, at this point, Abraham is 85 years old, and he doesn't have a son. Then in verse 6, we are given a parenthetical phrase that is a hinge to this chapter, and it's one of the most important verses, even in uh, Genesis, certainly, and even in the Old Testament. Look at verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him, as righteousness. Most of the time, I really love the New American Standard translation. It's my favorite. I have to do so little work with the Greek and Hebrew to get uh, a great translation with the NASB. But here, the first word is probably not the best translation. The NASB says, then he believed. And the implication there is, God said, verse 5, then Abraham believed based on what God said in verse 5. But that's not, that's not a, a correct understanding. Um, there's several different translations. The NASB, as, as we've just read, says, then he believed. The King James says, and he believed. 
But the new New International Version probably does the best job of all the translations. It simply says, Abram believed. There's no and or uh, uh, but or any, any anything else before that, but just Abram believed. If you wanted to stick a word before it, you could stick the word now, because this is a parenthesis. Now, Abraham believed in the Lord. It, it's like, oh, by the way, let me tell you, before we go on, Abram believed in the Lord. And we know that grammatically because the Hebrew does a special thing with a conjunction. If, if uh, there's a way that you can write in Hebrew that shows you know, consecutive action, and then there's a way you can write that shows a parenthetical statement. And it's impossible to translate that unless you actually put parenthesis in the translation, which none of our translations do. But you could put it in there. In verse 6, verse 6 is a parenthetical statement. And the point is, God had made a promise to Abraham. And oh, by the way, Abram believed this promise. That's the point of verse 6. Now, keep your finger here in Genesis, if you would, and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And let's take a quick little sidebar at something that is really essential for us as Christians and really anybody that has a relationship with God is familiar with this principle, but boy, we need to hear it uh, and have it reiterated in our hearts. The exclusivity of only one way to God is not a New Testament concept. It began long before Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life, there is no way, no one to the Father except through me. Of course, that's true. But in a sense, that has always been true. There has always only been one way to God, and that is by grace through faith. Now, the object of that faith has changed throughout the centuries. We've seen that throughout the scripture. For example, Adam and Eve, as early as you can go back, uh, when there was a need for salvation, Adam and Eve, their, the object of their faith was that um, the, the animal skins that, that God used to cover their nakedness also required death, so there was a sacrifice there. For, the, uh, for Moses and those under the law, there was the whole sacrificial system, the Levitical system that was set up. And then uh, Isaiah, of course, foretold the time when the Messiah would bear our sins. And ultimately, that, he, that Jesus did that, and he is the final sacrifice. But the point is that, that there's always been one way to God, always one way, and that is by grace, through faith, in the object that God specifies. That object has changed throughout the centuries, and ultimately it is landed and finished in Jesus Christ. In fact, all the others pointed to Jesus Christ and, and looked toward the final payment of Jesus and we see that in Romans. So let's look together for a second at Romans 3. Look down at verse 21. Romans 3:21. Let me begin there. It says, "But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe." For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly 
as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because, notice this part, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ or in Jesus. I don't remember where it was I read it, but one uh, theologian said that these verses here represent the distilled theology of the Apostle Paul in one paragraph. You could, you could summarize Paul's primary emphasis in his letters in this paragraph. And it's very true, because he basically is saying that uh, apart from the law, there is salvation only in Jesus Christ. But notice this part where it says that he passed over the sins previously committed. Have you ever wondered if Jesus is the only way to heaven, how are the people in the Old Testament saved? I mean, either Christ is the only way or he's not. Well, the old, people in the Old Testament were saved through the blood of Christ as well, though they just didn't realize it. It's sort of like this. When you go to the, uh, to the mall with your face mask on, and you get a uh, you make a purchase with a credit card. You're not paying a dime yet. You're just buying it on credit. Uh, you can take your radio or your CD or whatever it is you bought, take it home and enjoy it just as if you had paid cash. It is yours, but you haven't paid for it. You pay for it when the bill comes. It was the same way in the Old Testament, that all the sacrifices of the Old Testament were simply putting the debt of sin on a credit card, that it was credited to them as righteousness. But the sin hadn't yet been paid for. The bill came due on the cross when Jesus died on the cross. All of that sin was paid for. So this is what Paul means when he says there that, the, the, that he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, meaning that Jesus paid for it all in one fell swoop, all sin, past, present, and future. And then Paul illustrates that truth with the whole next chapter, which we won't read, but if you just glance down through Romans chapter 4, who does he use as the illustration of faith apart from the law? Abraham. In fact, just the first few verses here, look at that. Romans 4 begins, what, shall we, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And then he quotes Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, it's always been, salvation has always been by grace through faith. Just because all of the law came in, in between Abraham and Romans chapter 4, doesn't mean that the law had anything to do with our salvation. Uh, It's apart from the law, Paul says. But not only that, but the law says that it's apart from the law. How do we know that? Because Abraham, Abraham is the law, Genesis. Genesis through Deuteronomy is the law. And so, Genesis fifteen six saying that we are saved uh, by grace through faith is the law saying that we are saved by grace through faith. So, here's a principle. 
as you make your way back to Genesis 15, here's a principle that you can um, think about. And that is that we may have a relationship with God only by grace through faith in Christ. Like I said, I'm, I'm just amazed at the people who balk at Christianity's declaration that Jesus is the only way to God. The Bible has always been exclusive. There's only always been one way to God. In the Old Testament, it was only one way. Even before the law, it was one way, as Abraham shows. It's by grace through faith. And ultimately, that final object is Jesus. Well, in Genesis 15... We're back now at verse 7, where we see that even somebody with true faith needs assurance. Uh, We still need that affirmation. Look at verse 7. And he, meaning God, said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, and cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abraham drove them away. What in the world is going on here? I thought we were talking about you know, assurance of, of God's promises. Well, we are, but we're doing it in a way that we, in our 21st century culture, don't really understand. Today, if we want to make something binding legally, we go to a lawyer and sign about 1,000 pieces of paper. But in that day, you could do it through a number of covenants. They had a number of different types of covenants. Uh, there were four, actually, in Abraham's day. The first was called a hand covenant. We might think of it sort of as a handshake deal. Um, It was just very simple. The second was called a shoe covenant. We see this in the book of Ruth. Remember when Boaz gets the shoe of the kinsman redeemer that basically says, hey, you can walk on my land. So there's this transfer of ownership. Uh, The third is a salt covenant, basically where you 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 would trade a pinch of salt until you saw the other person again. I don't know the logic behind it, but that's what, that's what you would do. It was temporary. But the final one, this one that we see here in Genesis, is a blood covenant. So you had the hand covenant, the shoe covenant, the salt covenant, and then finally the blood covenant. The blood covenant is what God requested Abraham to make. An animal was to be cut in two. And here you had several animals that were cut in two. And then the, the two people who were making the covenant would join hands and walk between the pieces of this animal. And what it basically signified was a couple of things. First of all, if either of the parties failed to fulfill their part of the bargain, their blood would be like this animal. In other words, they would die. So in other words, this is a binding agreement. If you don't hold up your end of the bargain, you die. And secondly, the animal represented the death of the two people making the covenant so that after the covenant was made, the covenant couldn't be changed. It was an unchanging covenant. Now, before this covenant was actually done, uh, as it's described here, as I described it, God had something else to say to Abraham, and this is very important as well. Look at verse 12. 
Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, a terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. What's going on here? Well, remember, Abraham had, had asked God, how can I know that I'm going to possess the land? And God replied with these words, know for certain. So he is saying, how can I know? Here's how you'll know. Know for certain. God gave Abraham a confirmation because Abraham was wondering about the delay. Why is this taking so long? I don't have any I don't have a child. How can I be a father of a great nation? When am I going to get the land? How can I know that any of this is going to happen? And so Abraham, wondering at the delay, God says this, Know for certain there will be a delay. In fact, 400 years before your descendants will get this land. So God gives a promise not only to Abraham, but to his descendants So that when death happens, when delay happens, when suffering occurs, it it shouldn't cause them to doubt that God's going to give them the land. If anything, it's a confirmation because God says that's exactly what's going to happen. This is made even more important as we remember that Genesis wasn't written until the time of Moses. Remember, Moses is writing this, and the original readers of this were those who were about to enter the land. And so this would have been a great encouragement to them as they realize that God is being faithful to his promise. You know, in our lives as well, we, we need to remember that the hard times that we go through are not a contradiction of God's promise of good things to us. But rather, we need to remember that before most of the good things that God has promised come to us, we're going to experience, like Abraham and his descendants, Death, delay, discouragement, doubt, struggle. And God says, I'm telling you this ahead of time so that when it happens, you're not surprised. Remember, Jesus' disciples were always pushing Jesus for the kingdom. The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. And Jesus says, you know what? The cross comes first. And it's the same in our lives. So finally, the covenant is made or the covenant is cut we talk about cutting a covenant. We're talking about slicing these animals and, the, and walking between them. Verse 17, we see it actually happening now. <clears throat> it says, It came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Remember the blood covenant had two people walking through it, and they would hold hands. But when you see this covenant happening, you only see the fire that represents God uh, passing through. 
Remember, the fire is what Moses saw in the burning bush. The fire represented God. God alone passed through these pieces. In other words, as the text says, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. It doesn't say that Abraham made a covenant with the Lord. It was a one-way deal. It was unilateral. It was a, a, a covenant that God alone made. And God was saying, if I don't fulfill my promises to you, may I be like these dead animals. This was an unconditional promise. And Abraham realized that, uh, how can I know for certain this is going to happen? God gave him a great illustration. Look at the stars. That's how many descendants you're going to have. Look at, look at these pieces. This is how certain Uh, these pieces of animal. This is how certain you can be that what I say to you is going to happen. I want to show you a couple more pictures here. Um, If we can get uh, Dilbert off the screen. Look at these stars. You know, sometimes it's just helpful to remember what stars look like because we don't see them that often. But it's a good reminder here. Every time you see the stars... Remember God's promise, God's covenant to Abraham. You know, with the rainbow, we know of God's covenant to Noah, and really it's a covenant through Noah for the whole inhabited earth. But with the stars, we get a reminder of God's promise to Abraham that uh, his descendants will be like this, that they will indeed inherit the promised land. And the promised land, if we look at a map here, This obviously is the coast of Israel, and this green section represents the boundaries that God described. If you ever wonder what the true boundaries of the promised land are, they go from the brook of Egypt or the river of Egypt. Some people think that it's the Nile, but it probably isn't the Nile River, but rather this what's called the brook of Egypt because it's spoken of a number of times throughout the scriptures. In fact, Isaiah 27, verse 12, gives these same dimensions in the millennium. And so we know that in the millennial kingdom, when Jesus Christ is ruling the earth, will be the time that that Israel will experience the ultimate fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. So down here, and then it also says to the Euphrates. Now, when we think the Euphrates, we think, you know, over down in Iraq, or the Persian Gulf area. And, you know, the Euphrates is there, but that's where it ends. Where it begins is up in this area. In fact, you can't really read this little section here, but this says the western reaches of the Euphrates River. So God is saying from way down here to the brook of Egypt, all the way up here to where the Euphrates is. And notice, here's Damascus. So we are way up into Syria this the, the borders of the promised land are going to be large. And our Lord Jesus Christ is going to rule the world from that very area. Well, here's a final principle as we, um, as we look at closing the text today. And that's this, that we have assurance that God's promise of eternal life with Him will be fulfilled in spite of our doubts, our suffering, and our death. Notice God told Abraham in those final verses, he said, uh, your descendants are going to be enslaved for 400 years, and you, by the way, Abraham, you're going to be gathered to your fathers. You're going to die. In other words, you're going to die before these fulfillment of these promises come. 
And if we read the book of Hebrews, we see the exact same thing is said where it said all of these people of faith died without receiving the promises because they were going to inherit a better land. The promise made to Abraham extends beyond this life and it demands a resurrection. Otherwise, God doesn't fulfill his promises. But there's another thing that God said to Abraham. And where is it here? At the end of verse 16, it says, The iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. You know, one of the reasons that God delays is because it's not all about you, and it's not all about me. God cares for other people too, and they have yet to repent. God is delaying in sending Jesus for us at the rapture. God is delaying throughout the centuries because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God cares about the the lost, and God is giving them time, as Peter writes in the second Peter. He says, consider God's delay his patience, because he doesn't want any, any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So God delays because the sin of the Amorite is not yet complete. He is so gracious. But it's so important to remember that nothing can destroy God's promise to us. I remember reading about an old Scottish lady who firmly believed in the, the uh, security of her salvation. And one skeptic said to her, you know, what, what happens if you die and turns out that God sends you to hell? And this lady says, well, then, then God would lose more than I would lose. I would merely lose my salvation, but God would lose his good name because he has promised me that I'm going to heaven. I like Jesus' final words there in the upper room where he tells his disciples, this is the new covenant in my blood. Think about that and connect that with the promise in Genesis 15 of this blood covenant that God made to Abraham. We can, we can link that to Jesus' words where he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus' blood covenant is a covenant that, that he not only makes with Israel, but invites all of us by faith to participate in as our sins are forgiven by faith in him. I love that God repeats his promises to Abraham and gives him the assurance that he needs. Uh, we need it too. And if you're struggling and discouraged by the delays of God's promises in your life, Genesis 15 is a great place to read and to be encouraged and reminded God's not forgotten you. God still has a plan and a future for you. Uh, the, The discouragement, the death, the doubts, all the things that you're dealing with are part of his plan. And he has sent Jesus Christ to, um, to remind us and to illustrate for us through his death on the cross and resurrection that there is a future for us. And he loves us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the life of Abraham. Thank you for recording not only his great faith, but his great weakness. His questions, his struggles, the needs that he had are so well represented in our own hearts. Pray for any here today that need to be encouraged through this text, encouraged through your spirit, that you would do so. And that you would remind us all, Father, that uh, not only are we saved by grace, 
but we also have the confirmation of your promise by grace. That is, that you will send Christ for us one day, and that we will forever be in your presence. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.